0: Well, welcome to our contemporary service, uh, as we just uh, heard from that offertory. So, some of you do like uh, contemporary music. I just heard that. Very good. That was very creative as we um, heard that hymn of the faith. Well, this morning we, um, in many ways, last Sunday was our special Christmas uh, Sunday with our choir. They did a great job and presented the, the, the message of God speaking And as we think about any message that is giving, hopefully the message that is given is true. And so this morning I thought we would look at the Christmas story biblically and really go back to that fundamental issue for all of us as we think about uh, the majesty of this time of year, where you hear all the music, whether it's done in a traditional way or a contemporary way, or whether uh, you just smell this... The, the smells of things being baked uh, on this Christmas uh, time of year or the lights that are displayed everywhere, whether it's on our streets or in people's homes, uh, it hopefully pictures or portrays symbolically or in the hearts of people that this is special because Christmas is special and Christmas is special because it's true. If it's not true, uh, it's it's a nice story, but it's not going to do anything for us. It's true. I was a I was reading an old comic script called Mama. I don't know if any of you ever used to um, watch or read that particular comic strip. It's also kind of called Mrs. Hobbs. But the story went on like this, and it's uh, written by Mel uh, Lazarus. One of his strips shows Mama entertaining her perpetual suitor, Mr. K. Frankly, he's not much of a catch, but he is persistent. As the two sit on the couch, Mr. K says... "'Mrs. Hobbs, I'm at a low ebb. "'Psychologically, my ego is flattened.' "'Mrs. Hobbs responds in an affirming way, "'Mr. K., let me hasten to state "'that you're a fine, interesting, and attractive man.' "'Mr. K. perks up and asks, "'Oh, Mrs. Hobbs, is that the truth?' "'To which she replies, "'No, there'll be plenty of time for the truth "'when you're emotionally stronger.' (laughs) You know, some people look at Christians that way, you know, uh, when they're a little bit uh, grown up a little bit, you know, they've lived a little bit longer or they get a little emotionally stronger, we'll tell them the truth, this is all, this is all a myth. But really, uh, if it is a myth, we want to hear it, we want to know about it. It's interesting how we come to believe certain things, and, and some of it is uh, caricature, some of it is different things we hear in the media, what we hear often and long enough and loud enough, we, we uh, come to come some kind of conclusion about a person or an organization I was kind of surprised, maybe you won't be as surprised as much as I was, but I was, I was uh, looking at some news from MSN uh, this past week. And if you're not familiar with MSN, they're not exactly Fox News, all right? So, uh, in case you're not aware of that. But they, they had, an, they had a, a news flash about Walmart. And they said, for those of you who are critics of Walmart, um, here's some interesting things about uh, what Walmart does. And I was really curious to what they would put out there. And they said, well, uh, this Walmart, who many of you are very critical about, he, the, kind of the article was about, did you know it's the, they are the biggest supplier of organic milk in the world? That their bananas are their most um, best-selling item. But here are the ones that start getting you. Uh, did you know that they donated food for 100,000 meals after her- Hurricane Katrina? And also, they donated $20 million, as well as sending out 1,500 truck- truckloads of free merchandise. They also, during that Hurricane Katrina uh, uh, period of time, promised a job, this was fascinating to every one of its displaced workers in the New Orleans area. Also, they are the biggest buyer of organic cotton in the world, They've donated 500. In 2013, they donated 571 million pounds of food in 2013, and also in relationship to what they're trying to do in the health area, they have uh, made a promise that they would reduce in all packaged foods 25% of all of all um, sodium in it. Uh, They would reduce by 10% added sugar, and they would. Completely remove all industrial-produced trans fats and partially hydrogenated oils by the end of 2015, and then as far as the little man out there, that they have done four billion dollars of business with small, um, 1.2 to 1.4 small or or medium-sized farms in America. Now, what's interesting about that to me is the picture we get of walmart is all they're out there is for the almighty what dollar but as you think about their track record recorded by msn not fox news is they've seen all the good they have done now as we think about forming opinions about anything or anybody we want to form those opinions on the facts and as interesting as various things that happen in our world today um, what's most important for us during this season, is to determine, is the Christmas story true? And really, that's, that's a simple, I have really one point this morning, though I have a variety of other little details in there, but it's all about suggesting, promoting, trying to persuade all of us to be convinced it's true. On your outline this morning, I asked the beginning question, can we, can we know it's true, and what is it we want to know that's true. The, the essence of the tr- Christian story can be recorded in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And we're going to be talking at, the, kind of the, at, at our Advent um, celebration, our Christmas Eve celebration again. W- w- what do you get out of Christmas? Hopefully you get hope and you get peace and you get joy and you get love. And, and here it says that you get joy and it's, the interesting word in the original language is you get mega joy. That's the word for great in the, in, the, in the New Testament. You get mega joy. And why? Because it's for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, why do we believe that that little baby in the manger, that uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of things have been written, a lot of songs have been sung, a lot of uh, sermons have been preached about that little baby in the manger, that's a story that's true, that he truly was the Savior and the Lord. Well, I want to submit to you that, that everything about the Christmas event is, is miraculous and true. But it wasn't just on that particular day. Everything about us being convinced that Jesus is who he claim to be is true because God has, throughout history, done much to convince us. This is rooted in historical fact. So my, my three-point outline this morning is simply this. Can we know it's true? Well, it's truly, uh, uh, as we think about all that God has done, it was a miracle, it is a miracle, and it will be a miracle. It, it's truly uh, that which we can look back. It, it was a miracle, it is a miracle, and it will be a miracle. And we're going to be looking at what happened before Jesus came, we're going to look at Jesus coming, and then we'll be looking at Jesus coming again. And Lord willing, um, as we go into the, the new year, we're going to be beginning early in the new year, a series in the book of Revelation as we look at Jesus coming again. But as we think back, we need to recognize that the God has left his footprints everywhere. And truly really what, what people say about history, it really is his story. And so let's look at what it was, truly was a miracle, as we think about what happened before Jesus came. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you recognize the Bible is divided in two parts. One part is about two-thirds, the other part is one-third. You have the Old Testament, and then you have the the New Testament. And there's a period of time between the the last book in the Old Testament and even the, the first recorded one in our line of 27 books in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, there's a period called their 400 years, and they're called 400 silent years. And the reason they're called 400 silent years is because God did not raise up a prophet to um, record uh, God's truth to be written down for us to live on. And, and so God, in many ways, was silent in giving messages to his people. But as we think about God being silent, that doesn't mean he's not involved, that that he's not doing his thing in in all of of life. And, And just as it was in the book of Esther, which is, if you're familiar with the book of Esther, it's an interesting book because it's inspired by God, but there's one particular person that's never mentioned in that book, and it's who? It's God. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, and yet God is on every single page. And I want to submit to you that no matter what you're going through, and whether you're thinking right now that as you wrestle with, is the Christmas story is true? And you're saying, well, how, how can I believe it is true? Because I, I, can't, I can't hear from God. As far as I know, God is silent. And then maybe some of you say, well, I don't think he's silent, but whatever message I'm getting, that's the message I don't want to get. And that's who God is and all the pain or suffering or loss that you've experienced. How how, how could you even want to believe in a God where all you're experiencing is the, is the worst of life? So whether it's silence or difficult times, God is still involved. And that was always always the reality of God's chosen people. At times that they were so intimate with God and His love and His grace and mercy with them, but other times they experienced God's judgment. Or that they, they they seemed to, to think that God has somehow left them and they were all on their own resources. And that's much as what happened before Jesus came. And yet, even in the midst of that, Truly, it was a miracle because God was still working out his plan. And, and I want to illustrate that particularly as we think about what happened during those silent years. And even particularly this season. Um, many of us will have lights on our houses and they're multicolored lights or, or, or white lights you know, around our are out the outside of a home or inside of a home but some some people you know that what they do they have a a singular string of lights and they're one color what color is that blue and and they're the they're the covenant people of god the ethnic people of of israel jewish people and there's they're celebrating happy what hanukkah and sometimes we think well that's that's happy hanukkah is only for jewish people but really it's it's for all of god's people because god's hand was in the past truly it was a miracle and then Christmas came, truly it is a miracle. And then when Jesus comes again, truly it will be a miracle. Well, what is Hanukkah all about? Hanukkah is all about what God predicted would happen. And that's what we want to understand today. When we think about believing that Jesus is who He claimed to be, one of the major reasons, if not the major reason, is because Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. If not in His first coming, He will fulfill them all in His second coming. And as we think about it, well, how, how did that happen? Because God was involved miraculously in life and in people and in nations throughout time. If you have your Bible, let's turn to Daniel. And um, uh, Lord willing, we will get through this, so you can relax you just say, man, you're going kind of slow in the beginning. Uh, if you know where Daniel is, if you know where the book of Psalms is, you kind of hang it right from that, and you, you find Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then you'll, you'll kind of run into Daniel right after that. In Daniel chapter 8, Daniel... You know, as a prophet, and God has given him information, and often he gave him information through visions. And as he gives him a vision, sometimes he gave some things you go, Man, I, I, how, did you, how did you understand what God told you? And we're going to see that this morning. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, and this just sets the time when he received the message. In the third year, the reign of Belshazzar, the, the king, a vision appeared to me, uh, Daniel, subsequently to the one which appeared to me previously. Which simply is saying, You know, I, I've, I've experienced multiple visions. Um, and here's another one, and as we're going to hear, it's God announcing that he, he is vitally involved in life and in history and in the story of what he's about to do. Picking up in verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was, st- was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. What in the world was he talking about there, right? He puts out an image, and and he's, he's giving this to Daniel, who then writes it down to give it to us, and you're thinking, Daniel, what did you eat last night? This makes no sense. But we're going to sense that God we're going to see a little in a, in a moment that God God tells us what this means but let me tell you now before I show you where Daniel tells us what it is what he is here he pictures a nation that's not in power now but is going to come Babylon is in power but there's going to be another world power that's going to, to raise to prominence it's, it's it's the medo-persian power and the ram with two horns puts the two of the kingdoms together one the shorter horn which started earlier, and then the one that came out was Persia. The younger nation was more powerful than the, the older nation, and they came together to to bind into the the, the supreme power of that day. And it, it goes everywhere to present the kingdom. But then he comes up, and he, and he gives another picture that, that God gives him, verse 6. Uh, well, actually, verse 5. While I was observing the ram, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth, "...without touching the ram, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes." So now we have another animal, not a ram, but a goat, and this has one horn, and it is protruding from um, his eyes. "...and he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath." And so in his dream now, he has these two animals attacking each other. You have the ram and you have the goat, one with two horns, one with uh, one large horn. What happens in this battle? Verse seven: I saw him come beside the the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, both Medo, the Medes and the Persians, and the man had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from the power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly; in other words, he was very proud of his victory. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken and the place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And you say, what in the world are you talking about here? He says, another power came into being, and this power came after the Medes and the Persians, and it was the power of, of Greece. And the one horn there represents the man who was in charge of establishing a world empire, and his name was Alexander the, the Great. And as you know about Alexander the Great, he basically conquered the whole known world by the age of around 32. And then he died rather suddenly. And his kingdom was divided up in fours. And just in case you're thinking, well, you're just kind of reading that into that. Look at Daniel chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. The ram, which you saw with the two horns, represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, which would have been Alexander the Great. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in his place represent four kingdoms, and it will rise from his nation, although not with his power. And and that was written over 200 years before this all happened. But what happened after that, when Greece was broken up into four kingdoms, um, one of those kingdoms came into power over Israel. And the man who came over to power was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes was a man who hated the Jewish people. Now, that's never really happened in all of history, right? Well, Antiochus Epiphanes, I was going to call him a little Hitler, but he was a big Hitler, all right? He came in there, and immediately he he killed 40,000 Jews. And then he decided, not only I want to take their lives, but I want to take their faith. And so what he did is he took the temple, and he... He threw out everything about the worship of the true God, Yahweh, and began to establish the the, the, the worship of Zeus. And, and, and he would force the, the people of the land to come in and to worship a false god. He eliminated all the Sabbaths, and he eliminated all the festivals and all the feasts, and he did everything he could to eliminate the culture and the faith of the Jewish people. And, and then to, to really defame the temple, he took... The, uh, on the altar of altars, he put a pig and sacrificed it on that altar. Well, God raised up uh, a man named Judas Maccabeus and his own uh, whole Maccabeus um, line, who are the line, the priestly line of Aaron, and they began, compelled by God, to revolt against Greece. And Miracle after miracle, they were able to overcome them in their land and recapture Jerusalem and recapture the temple. But when they recaptured the temple, they, they, as they came in, they recognized it was defiled. And there was only one way to, to rededicate it or to purify it. They, they had to go through the process, and the process had to take eight days. And there was a, a holy oil that was to light the lamps that would, that would preserve the, the purification of the temple. But they only had oil enough for one light to last for one day. But it required eight days. But God, in His true miraculous way, made that candle not only be available for one day, but for eight days. And from there comes the story of the menorah, where you have the, the four candles on either side and a candle in the center, which is the candle that was used to, to light the other candles, to show God's miraculous hand in preserving the nation of Israel. And, and you're thinking, well, what has that got to do with, with Jesus? Well, we know in John chapter 10, and you have in your outline this morning, it, it, we have um, this statement about Jesus uh, celebrating what we would call Hanukkah. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And interesting, one uh, uh, Ryrie says in his commentary that uh, that first um, uh, cleansing of the temple uh, was on December 25th, the end of it, of 165 B.C. There are various dates that I've read about, but it's interesting as we think about that season. If you're up on Hanukkah this particular a year. It started December 16, and it will end on Christmas Eve, December 24. But what we have is Jesus. You're saying, well, the Feast of Dedication, what does that have to do with with Hanukkah? Well, the Feast of Dedication remembers this particular event. Some places it's called the Festival of Lights, but the word Happy Hanukkah or the word Hanukkah, you know what the word Hanukkah means? It it comes from a, a root Hebrew word, to dedicate. And so it's happy dedication. And the reason I bring this out is because, number one, Jesus participated in Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedications, but it also speaks to a larger issue. Now, God could have done it in a variety of different ways, but uniquely and specially, if Jesus was to fulfill all the prophecies in terms of being from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David, and all the other ones, he would have had to preserve the line of Israel. And he did it in a miraculous way. So if you're ever, ever invited with by Jewish friends, my neighbor has a string of blue lights you know, across his, his home. If, if anybody ever gets invited as a Christian to someone to celebrate Happy Hanukkah, just participate in it. I mean, it's a great remembrance of God's faithfulness to his people and to his promises and the prophecies that would be fulfilled in Jesus. So as we think about why do we believe that christianity and christmas it's true because truly it was a miracle a miracle that the jewish people even survived before jesus came and hanukkah is all about that truly it was a miracle but but as we think about christmas and we're going to put that in the present tense because we still celebrate today truly it is a miracle it is a miracle because at that appointed time, in Galatians four four, say at the, at the appointed time, God sent forth His Son Jesus. It fulfilled all again the promises that were true about the one who was to come. If if someone is coming that you've never met, then you want to find out a little bit about them, right? You know what. You know, are they male? Are they female? Are they what, what's their height? What's their weight? What will they be wearing? What will they look like? What are, what are what's their personality like? Or how, how can I recognize them? Well, that's basically what Jesus how Jesus was presented to us in the Old Testament, so that when he came, we could recognize him. And as we look at Matthew, and this is this is just like a, a short glimpse of of some of the things that Jesus has done. Matthew was written as a gospel to convince Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. There are more prophecies, there's more Old Testament references in the the Gospel of Matthew than any of the other four Gospels. I think there's 93, for instance, in um, the Gospel of Matthew, and there's like 49 in the Gospel of Mark. Why? Because it was written to convince people that Jesus fulfilled that which was necessary to be truly the Messiah. Not just a wannabe, but that he was the Messiah. And so how did, how did he do that? Well, there's a variety of ways, and we're going to make some general comments in the end. But, but one, it, it was prophesied that, that the Messiah who was to come would come in a miraculous way. That his birth would be a what kind of birth? A virgin birth. In Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23, it says, Now all the people took, took place to fulfill what was spoken to by the Lord through the prophet. Behold... The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they should be called. They should call his name Emmanuel, which is translated "God with us." And, and that's found in Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen. And, and there's a there's a double fulfillment of that. There was a there was a near fulfillment, which which was a partial fulfillment, as as Isaiah um, told King Ahaz that that God be faithful for the Assyrian onslaught and a a virgin. Uh, uh, mother and it would get married and then have a child before the Assyrian onslaught, and that happened then. But it was a full commitment, a full fulfillment in the life of Jesus. So, how do we know that Jesus Jesus the Messiah? There was a miraculous birth; it was a virgin birth. Secondly, we would know where he would be what born. I, I say it'd be interesting even right now in this this size of this room. We say, okay, Hamius were born in the same city, in the same hospital. And I'm not sure if there'd be any of us here that were born in the same city or the same hospital. Um, uh, There might be one or two here, but but if, if one was designated a particular place of birth, that would eliminate anyone else for being a possible candidate to be the Messiah. And where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. So that reference in your outline should be Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. But you see the, the, the New Testament reference and the Old Testament reference. So Jesus had a miraculous birth. He had a uh, specific place that he would be born. And, and then you have the context. What would happen when he would come to, to, come to, um, to be here on earth? And here we have not, not what I would call specific prophecies, but you would have analogies or types in the, in the Old Testament related to the New Testament. Because Herod's response to uh, the birth of the one who was going to be the king of kings or the king of the Jews when the Magi came asking where he was to be born and they discovered it was Bethlehem, is that later on he, he chose to try to eliminate all the male children. And it, kind of, and it fulfilled the analogy of Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And so Jesus fulfilled that analogy of the Old Testament of the weeping of the, of the mothers of the children that were taken into Babylon uh, in the same way that Jesus was to be taken out of, out of Bethlehem. So the weeping for children. Uh, uh, fourthly, uh, that he would go out to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And the context of there is Jesus was, was in Israel and then escaped into Egypt because of uh, the, the threat on his life. And Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, talks about, uh, again, that out of Egypt did God call his son. And that was true of Israel, the nation, and then it was true of specifically his son that was to come, uh, the son of God, the son of man, Um jesus and so again we see well how would we know that jesus was who he truly claimed to be? he would fulfill what was written he would have a miraculous birth a virgin birth he would be born in a specific place bethlehem there would be a response to the mothers at the crying out of the death of their children there'd be a, a place where he'd come back out of out of egypt and rescue because of the the threats of herod and then finally he would be called a nazarene in matthew chapter 2 verse 23 it says in And came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets: He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, if you're a student of the the New Testament as well as as a little bit of the Old Testament, you say, "Well, where in the Bible does it say he was a Nazarene?" And the reality is, it never says he's a Nazarene. But the Bible uses not only specific statements in terms of prophecies, but analogies and types. And, And what was what was said of Jesus that he would be a branch, a branch of Jesse. Out of a, out of a shoot, and the word branch comes from a word called netzer, which is a lot like Nazarene. But even more than that, in Isaiah chapter fifty-three, uh, uh, verse three, it said he would be uh, uh, despised by all men. When Jesus was revealed to uh, Nathaniel in John chapter one, verse forty-six, about they had met the Messiah. Remember that, and he said, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Maybe you've been ever, maybe some of you have ever lived on a particular other side of the tract, and as soon as you told people where you lived, they had a certain picture of who you were. And that's how he became known as one out of Nazareth, because they, they just could not conceive that. He was despised by all. But, but I just want to touch down on just a little bit, other, not only that. As you think about Jesus fulfilling all that was promised of the, of the Messiah, the one who was to come, so we would recognize when he came, Matthew begins his gospel that way. Uh, the genealogies. You know, he said that the one who was to come would be a, uh, he would be of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, J- uh, Judah, Jesse, David. And you just take that line, and, and it doesn't even stop there. That eliminates so many people who could possibly present themselves as the Messiah. And if Hanukkah had not happened, if God had not rescued the people, that line would have been obliterated. But even as that line was, was kept intact, God sovereignly, through Joseph and through Mary, had Jesus fulfill all those prophecies. And then if you can go beyond that, he's going go into his life, and, and just look at even, not only at his birth, but at his death. Here was a man who was betrayed by a friend, and for a specific amount, for 30 pieces of silver. And not only for 30 pieces of silver, that 30 pieces of silver would be used in a specific way to buy a potter's field. And not only would it be to buy a potter's field, his death would be such a horrible death that when it was prophesied in Psalm 22 about his death, that form of execution had not even been invented at the time. And not only that, that he, would be, he would die between two thieves. And not only that, of course, not only would he die a horrible death, but he would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. And then from that he would become a victor over death. That doesn't happen by chance. One of my favorite illustrations um, is of Jesus, the probability of Jesus fulfilling prophecies by chance. And you just take eight or ten of the of the three hundred and fifty-three prophecies related to Jesus, first coming and second, coming, that he would just fulfill eight to ten of the major prophecies. The, 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 the probability that happened by chance is one to the ten to the seventeenth power by Peter Stoner. That was a book I read by Josh McDowell probably thirty years ago. Well, Peter Stoner had a son who was a mathematician. He went back and looked at his father's work and said, Dad, I think you made a mistake. It's not 1 to the 10 to 17th power; It's 1 to the 10 to 18th power." Now, I have no idea what does that mean. What does that mean? And that, what, what that means is you can take the state of Texas. And as far as I'm concerned, you can take the state of Texas. But you can take the <laughs> state of Texas. Right, and, and you fill the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. That's 10 to the 18th or 10 to the 17th power. I don't know what 10 to the 18th power, but 10 to the 17th power is filling all the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollar and you mark one of them with an X. And then you take a bulldozer and you just move all those silver dollars throughout the whole state of the Texas. And then you take a man, or a woman for that matter, blindfold them and say on the first pick, you've got to pick out that silver dollar with an X on it. That's the probability of Jesus fulfilling these prophecies. Just some of the prophecies, eight to 10 of them, um, in, in, in his life. And, and so God wanted us to know, truly, it is a miracle. It was a miracle with Hanukkah, and we can experience happy Hanukkah. It is a miracle about Christmas. That's why we can celebrate Merry Christmas. And it is uniquely Jesus. In your outline this morning, I, I put it this way. You know, as you look at people being prophesied who, who bring into clarity what we are to believe, uh, is that true of other world religions? How about, how about, how about Muhammad? W- were there prophecies about this individual who would bring to pass uh, a world religion? And the answer is no. Islam does not have this this history, God's story, to show that we can recognize the one who has come is true. Well, h- how about How about Joseph Smith? Are there prophecies related to him that he would be the announcer of what is true? And the answer is no. Mormonism has none of that. How about David Koresh? That's a little bit kind of more recent. The, the uh, Branch Davidians. Are there any prophecies related to David Koresh? And the answer is no. How about Charles Russell who, who started Jehovah's Witnesses? Are there are there any any reasons why we ought to believe what he had to say? Or Siddhartha, you know, Buddhism. And the answer is no, because Jesus is uniquely predicted by historical statements in the past. And Isaiah was 700 years before Jesus came into being. As we think about things that God wanted us to know, that when I send the one, the anointed one, the promised one, you will recognize him in so many different ways. So why why do we believe it's true? Because it was true, it is true, and it will be true. Just looking at the last verse, the whole passage, Titus 2, and 11, Titus 2 to 11 through 14, is an amazing passage. But it, it, Paul writes to Titus and he says, Looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. We look ahead to the one who has already come. And it, it, if it was true and it is true, it will be true. Jesus came as our Savior and He's coming again as our judge. As King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the, the issue for us is not only not only do we celebrate Christmas, but we, do we celebrate it as being true? I was reading a story by about uh, Abraham Lincoln who who uh, had had such a simple way of communicating. And, and sometimes when he would be in debate with people or in conversation with people, and he and he couldn't get his point across or they wouldn't listen. And have you ever have you ever if you ever talk with people and you recognize, why am I wasting my time? They have no interest in what I have to say. They, they, their mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts, whatever it might be. And, and he, was, he was having one of these conversations. And so he said, well, let me just ask you a question. He said, If we had a cow here and I asked you, how many legs does the cow have? What would you tell me? And the man said, well, I would tell you that it has four legs. Well, what if we took the cow's tail and we called the ta- cow's tail a leg? And then I asked you, well, how many legs does a cow have? What would you tell me? And the man said, I would tell you the cow had five legs. And he said, that's that's the problem of our debate right now. The problem of our debate is, I don't care what you call that tail, whether you call it a leg or not, it's not a what? It's not a leg. And so as we come to conviction about Christmas, it's not just calling it true. It's got to be true. A cow only has four legs. You can believe it has five, but it doesn't have five. And why this is so crucial is because this is what life is really all about. There's got to be something more than just what we see around us. Warren was was sharing at the men's breakfast yesterday a a quote from Macbeth, and I never quote from Macbeth, but I'll quote from Warren who's quoting from Macbeth. And it was this is what Macbeth, uh, Acts five, Scene five. And well, anyway, (laughs) tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. This is Shakespeare. To the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools. The way to dusty death out, out brief candle. Let's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, I wasn't very good at interpreting. Shakespeare, but I, I got that last line. You know, if, 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 it's, if it's not true about God, it, it really signifies nothing. It's just a story. It's just a tale. Told by people who might be well-learned and uh, intelligent in comparison to other things, but it's really an idiot commentating on a life that has no meaning unless God has given us meaning. And God has revealed that meaning in His Son. Let's pray together. Father, we, we want to celebrate Christmas because it's true. And your Son came to tell us the truth. And not like to tell us the truth, but to be the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me, but through me. And Father, that little baby in the cradle who went to the cross, he's he's the answer to life. And Father, I would pray that everyone here has received and and opened up their heart to the invitation that Jesus has given. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know the the Savior, the Lord that has come, might they simply open up their lives and say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to follow you. I give you my life. Forgive me of my sin. I want to be your disciple. And when we pray that prayer, really meet in our heart, then you'll answer that and bring us into that new experience of being a new creation in Christ. Help us to know you and to live for you. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen. As we close our time together.